Hey, this is Scott, and I'll tell you up front, you're going to love today's conversation with Whitney. But I also want to let you know, if you want to support the show, I've started a Patreon. Hang around right after today's episode, and I'll tell you how you can support this show for as little as a dollar a month. What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Sometimes great ideas show up in your brain at the most surprising times. One morning last September, Whitney Austin suddenly had the idea that she was going to do something. She was going to take action and do everything in her power to reduce gun violence. And let me tell you, Whitney is a very determined person. When she decides to do something, it's going to happen. Since that day, she has started a nonprofit organization along with several of her colleagues with the purpose of reducing all gun violence in a way that everyone can accept. And what prompted her to have that great idea? Well, when she first thought of it, she was at the Fifth Third Bank building in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she worked. She remembers this very specifically because she was inside the revolving door, the main entrance to the building. She was slumped on the floor inside that revolving door, and she was bleeding because she had just been shot 12 times. That morning, as she entered the building, she had unknowingly walked into a mass shooting that was happening right there in the lobby. And as she lay there, pretending to be dead, with literally a dozen bullet wounds in her body, she thought about her husband and her two young children And she also thought, if I live through this, I have to do something to stop this from happening again. I love talking with people who don't just talk about problems, they take action. That's Whitney. In the show notes for today's episode, I'll have links to her organization called Whitney Strong for anyone that wants to help in this cause. And that's at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash 23. And just before my conversation with Whitney, you'll hear about five minutes of the police radio communication that happened that morning in order to kind of set the scene for Whitney's story. I'll be back afterward to wrap things up. 1791. Um, I have some people running up to me saying that there's a shooter at Fifth Third. Copy. Do you have that address? I do not. It's just on the square. I copy. I have a shot run for affirmative. I have a shot run five one one Walnut Street at the Du Bois Building. Report of shots fired inside of the building. No further at this time. Seventeen ninety one. First floor of the fifth third building is what I'm being told. Copy. First floor of the fifth third building. We advise we have an active shooter uh, that's still inside the building. Have they left the building? Any information? Only information, 7315, advised first floor of the fifth, third building. No further at this time. 6120, did you copy? Possibly an active shooter inside the fifth, third building. Male, male white with glasses is what I'm getting. Apparently there's a guy down. Got shot. Copy, one down, sign fire. 1791, no suspect yet. Uh, Got shot fire, got shot fire. Copy. More shots fired in the building. Coming out of the front. He's coming out the front. Copy. Subject's coming out the front. 1791. Suspect down. Inside the... Copy. Suspect down inside the building. 1791. Make sure we don't have any other shooters. Copy. Make sure we don't have any other shooters. 1791. Get fire here. We got at least two down. 
I copy. Fires responding. Two down. 21, 41, 35. I'm on it. Copy. On the front. 6100. Do we have shots fired by police? Any shots fired by police? Correct. Shots fired by police. Copy. Shots fired by police. I got another one. Officers okay. Copy. All officers okay. I'm asking, is the officers okay? Any units on scene? Fire now! Copy. Fires responding. Officers are okay. Any officer down? Officers down. Repeat fire. One at 5th and Walnut. Copy. One at 5th and Walnut. We need fire immediately. Copy. I have one at 5th and Walnut. Where's the other victim? At Graders. I have a victim in front of Graders. I copy. Victim at Graders. We have victims inside the 5th Third Building. Copy. Victims also inside. 34. There's two victims inside the bank. Copy. Two inside the bank. Fire's not responding until the scene is secure. All units advise. It's secure. Get fire in here. I copy. Fire's responding. 6135. Where's the shooter located at and the officers involved? 1150. Shooter is in custody. He has been shot. We're in the lobby of the um, uh, bank on the Fountain's side. They've not cleared any further. Copy. Shooter is in custody at the lobby of the bank. Subject has been shot. 1532. Apparently, we got some victims on the loading dock of the 5th Third uh, Building. Copy. Victims on the loading dock of 5th Third Building. I need fire in front of a grader. I have one female victim here. I'm attempting to fly a tourniquet now. Copy. One victim in front of graders. Gunshots, one of the abdomen, one of the chest. We need to get off. 6100, hold the channel. We need, I've got three down at least inside the lobby of Fifth Third. It's secure. Get fire in here now. I copy. Fire responding. All units holding the channel unless you have an emergency. At least one critical on the loading dock. Copy one critical on the loading dock. Can you let 1150 know there are two downstairs? Two downstairs on the loading dock. Fires here with one of them. I need one more fire unit, but I believe he made the call already. I copy. I copy. 3111, being advised, there's two civilians hiding in the bathroom inside the bank. Copy. Two civilians hiding in the bathroom in the bank. The morning this happened, you faced death, and yet you lived to see your husband and your children again. Have you made any sense of that yet? No, and I don't think while I am alive on this earth, I will ever make sense of it. I joke all the time. Someday when I get to heaven, I will ask God, why did this happen? Why was I given the opportunity to live and others were not? It's very hard to reconcile. It's a a sensation of guilt quite often. So I'll get my answer someday, but while living on this earth, I don't think that I will. And so what I try to do is not spend any energy on trying to figure it out because I won't get those answers and spend all of my energy in trying to be grateful and use that gratitude to drive me to take action to prevent gun violence. Sounds like a good strategy. That'll be a good question for the afterlife. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about what led up to what happened? This is this happened at Fifth Third Bank, and usually when you think when I say Fifth Third Bank, I think of a bank, but this is actually their uh, headquarters, right? The office building. Correct in downtown Cincinnati. And how long have you worked there? A long time, my entire career post college. So this summer it will be sixteen years. What's the actual layout of the building? Like when you walked when you walk in the door, are you are you like in a lobby or something, or how's that laid out? 
Yeah, so the building is used by Fifth Third Bank employees primarily. However, there are several restaurants that connect mainly because we need to eat, right? So there is a Dunkin' Donuts, there is a Grater's Ice Cream shop, a sandwich shop, actually two sandwich shops. And so all of them connect into that lobby. But in order to get up into the third headquarters, you have to pass through a turnstile. You must have access via badge, et cetera. So the, to the entrance of the building, you have to go through a revolving door and then a turnstile? Correct. So you go through the revolving door and then you have access to the lobby, which is, again, the um, restaurants that I named. And then in order to get into Fifth Third, you have to go through the turnstile. All right. So this, when this happened, this was just a typical Thursday morning. What, what time do you normally get to work? So most of the time I work out of Louisville, Kentucky, but every week I take a trip to Cincinnati, mainly because of a major project that I work on, had been working on at that point. And so if I go to Cincinnati, there are really two paths. You can leave very early in the morning prior to 6 a.m. in an effort to get there before 7.30, 8 a.m. traffic into Cincinnati or you need to little, leave a little bit later so that you avoid it altogether, in which case leaving sometime between 7.30 and 8.30 will do that for you. And so I had chosen to leave at the later time on this given day. So as you, as this happened, you walked in and you were actually on the phone. But when you were out, before you entered the building, if you had looked in the building, is, there, is it all glass? Could you have seen what was happening? You know, I don't, thinking back, I'm, I'm not sure, and I have not been back to the building since the shooting at this point, and it's been a little longer than seven months. I don't know if you can see in through the glass or not. If you can, it's it's probably difficult. You probably have to get pretty close. So what I noticed is that in that revolving door, one sheet of glass was completely shattered from top to bottom, but the glass was still fully intact. So you know, one would think, why would you, you know, step into a door where there's glass everywhere, you could cut yourself, etc. It wasn't like that, it was still intact. And there was also a hole in that door or in that glass sheet, that was probably, um, you know, looking back, it was the size of a bullet, but none of those thoughts crossed my mind. I, I more thought, somebody threw a rock, you know, it must have been a rock that caused this to occur. And I just kept going and I pushed on that door. And that is one of my biggest regrets, even if it was a rock, there should have been, you know, red flags waving in my brain. What are you doing? Why are you walking into a door that has glass shattered within it? Right. But, but as I recall, or what I've read, were you, you were on the phone at the time, right? Weren't you on a conference call? Yeah, I was on the phone, but I still don't give myself that excuse. I was absolutely focused on a call. And it was a subject matter that we had worked through multiple times before. We hadn't yet come to a conclusion as to how we wanted to address this issue. So it was very focused. This was the third time we were talking about this subject matter. So I was very focused. But in my mind, that is still not an excuse for pushing a door, again, where all of the glass was shattered and there was a hole in the door. Well, we've got you've got the luxury of looking back on it now to uh, kind of... Monday morning quarterback, what you did. I know. And I, and and just to add, I tell people all the time now need to pay attention to your surroundings. And I personally don't walk around taking phone calls anymore. It's just too difficult to concentrate on multiple things. Right. Yeah. People get hit by cars while they're talking on the phone as as they're walking. So take us through what happened as you walked through that door you just, it was immediately chaos, right? Can you just take us minute by minute through what happened? Yes. So in total, it wasn't more than a couple of minutes, but as soon as I pushed on that door, I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets for the most part on the right side of my body. Now I know per my physicians that I was hit 12 times, but as to how many of them came in the first blow versus the second I don't have those details, but there were definitely two blows in terms of bullets. So I pushed, I was immediately hit on my right arm and some, some on the right side of my body. 
and I collapsed into the bottom of that quadrant. So if you can imagine four sections of a revolving door, I'm stuck within one. And I never made it out of that door until I was rescued minutes later. So I never even made it into the building. I was stuck right there in that quadrant. And the force of the first barrage forced me into collapsing. So I was sitting at the bottom of that revolving door and I certainly felt a lot of pain, but it was coupled with, you know, confusion, trying to sort through my brain, what was happening to me. So I wasn't allowed, you know, it didn't allow myself to focus only on the pain. There was a lot more to think of and a lot more to work through. And so again, collapsed on the floor, I've got pain and I'm trying to figure out what happened to me. Could you see, did, did you see the gunman before he shot you or, or no. during this time? No, I never saw him, not even once. But I knew enough after very little thinking to conclude this is a mass shooting. There's no other reasonable explanation for what happened to me. This is absolutely the result of bullets. And I was then left to think through, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this situation? And so, you know, the first thought was just get up and walk out and I don't know why I couldn't in that moment, because when I was rescued minutes later, I did actually walk out but with assistance, but I couldn't muster up enough strength to just physically get up and get out of that quadrant. So that option wasn't going to work. I scanned all of Fountain Square and there wasn't a soul to be seen. So nobody's going to come rescue me. I can't get out of this situation. And then the third option was, we'll call someone. And so I went to move my arm to get to my phone, but I didn't even have enough strength to move my arm to pick up my phone. I was really contorted at the bottom of that revolving door. And so I heard the conference call that I was a part of. I heard them speaking to me, but I had placed the phone on mute before I crossed over Fifth Street to walk into Fountain Square. So they couldn't hear what was going on either. So all three options that I had to get out of that situation, none of them were going to work. And so in that moment, I felt felt very helpless. And then combined with the fact that I'm in pain and I was also coughing up blood. So hopeless, despair, those were the thoughts that were going through my brain because I just didn't see a way out of this situation. And then as I moved to try and make that phone call, that's when I got hit again by a second barrage of bullets. And in my brain, I thought that happened because I moved. Whoever is shooting at me thinks that I'm still alive. So I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to play dead until this situation resolves itself. Do, do you know at that point how many other people had already been shot? Now, I know you didn't know then, but looking back on it now, as far as the timeline, do you know what, what where where he was at at that point and, and other victims? So loosely, I know that I was at the end. I will say that I have not gone back and poured over the videos or the details in the way that many others have. And that's simply for, you know, my ability to move forward as a mentally strong individual. So loosely, I can say that I was at the end. But we do know other people had been shot and there were multiple 911 calls as well uh, throughout this time. Yes, absolutely. Hello? Hi, this is Cincinnati Police. We received a 911 call from this number. Is everything okay? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm in the Victor um, building in downtown where the Fountain Square is. Uh-huh. We, are by the, we are by the dark area. And I had two people that they had been shot. Okay, so you have two people that have been shot. Where are they at? They are in the basement of this picture building in Fountain Square. And we have like a loading dock. Okay. And by the loading dock? So they're in the basement by the loading dock? Yes. Okay, I've got them on the way. What is your name? Uh, This is... All right, did you see who shot these people? Uh, I see who shot them. Yeah, it was from the lobby. And someone from the lobby shot him. Could you give me a description of him? I couldn't see. I just see the back, the back of his face. But they, they have enough cameras in the lobby. You won't okay. be able to find out. All right, honey. we've got him on the way. Okay. 
All right, we'll be waiting outside by the door so I can direct the ambulance. Okay, I've got them on the way. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Talk to that in hour one. What is the address of your emergency? Hello? Hello, Cincinnati in hour one. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm at greatest from there. I don't... I don't really know what's going on. I I don't know if there's like a shooter in the building or something. Okay, are you at 38 Fountain Square and Graders? Yeah. Okay, what's going on there? What do you see, hon? I I don't know. We 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 saw someone that looked like they had a gun, um, and and like and like hurt. We're hearing what sounded kind of like gunshots. Okay, what is it? What is your name, sweetheart? Tell me the description. Can you give me a description of the person that you think may have had a gun? Um, just so I don't know. He was just in like a like a business suit. Male in a business suit. Do you remember what color the business suit was? No, no, we we just all ran into it. That's okay. I want you to stay exactly where you are. Okay, I've got officers there on scene. I want you to stay where you are. Okay, and what's your phone number, sweetheart? All right, sweetie, I want you to stay where you are, okay? I'll let officers know that you're in the graders. Is, is the door locked? Yeah, um, no, the front door is not locked. We ran into the bathroom, and the bathroom door is locked, and we just heard the bell ring. That someone came okay, out. I want you to stay where you are, okay? Okay. All right, sweetheart. Like I said, I've got officers there on scene, okay? Have you guys got another calls about you? We've, we're, we've got hundreds of calls. Okay. Okay, stay where you are. Let them know that you're in the graders in the bathroom, okay? Okay. All right, sweetie. So so you're there in the middle of this revolving door, kind of out of options. What what do you do? 
So again, feeling very hopeless in a state of despair. And very, very quickly, the police arrived. And the moment that I saw Officer Al Staples out of my left eye, he was positioned by the ATM, which was closer to the Grader's ice cream shop. I knew that I had a way out of this situation that I was going to fight. So shifting very quickly to, I don't have any way out of this situation. I'm coughing up blood. I think that I'm going to die to, nope, I'm getting out of here. And so it's interesting at that point, I shifted between two points of view. One was, get me out of here, Al. And I, and I kept screaming at him. I have a five and a seven-year-old and they need their mother. You need to get me out of this revolving door. And at one point he even said, there's a five and a seven-year-old in there. And I said, no, 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 no. They're at home. They are safe, but I am their mother and I need to get home to them. And I couldn't understand why he didn't immediately just run over and save me. But looking back, I understand that's not protocol. That's not how these situations are approached. You have to eliminate the danger first. How far away was he from you at that time? Oh, I'm, this is the worst game for me. I don't know, maybe 10 to 20 feet, probably about 20 feet. Certainly close enough that you could communicate yes, by voice. Yes, absolutely. And above, you know, the sounds of bullets, et cetera, he can hear me and, and we're communicating well. And then the other thought that I had in that moment of time was, in that moment of time was, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to do something to stop all of this. So I had taken steps to volunteer through a local organization to really try to prevent gun violence. But all I had done was signed up to receive text messages and I'd get them and I'd ignore them because at the end of the day, there's only so much time for work and family. It's so difficult to slide something else into the mix. So I would ignore them. And in that moment, I thought, you ignored all those text messages. You never showed up, not even to one meeting. You deserve to be in this situation. And if you get out of it and you get that amazing opportunity to get back with your family and your children, you are going to do something about this so that no one else ever has to feel this way. And certainly this has happened again, but I am fighting as hard as I can to prevent those I love from going through this same situation. So very brief moment in time, but I had both of those thoughts. I'm going to get out of here. And once I get out of here, I'm going to do something about this. That's, I find that really incredible that that was your, that your, that was your line of thought when you're literally uh, in danger for your life, not knowing if you're even going to be shot again, um, that you're thinking of the big picture of how can we stop this from happening to other people again. Are you, is that kind of the way you often think like uh, looking at like the 30,000 foot uh, point of view? No. Well, certainly there are moments that I think that way at work regarding the products that I manage, but I think so many of us get caught up in the hustle and bustle of everyday life and you don't take enough time to take that massive step backwards and think about what's important in life. And so in that brief moment where what was important in life was me getting home and getting back to my family, it was so natural to think about that next thing. It's the idea of gratitude. And if you get the opportunity to live, then you have to do something with that because very few people get that. That's very true. At this point, you are, you, you see, you're in contact with Officer Staples and you had been shot 12 times. Correct. Yes. Where can you describe where did where did these bullets go? Where were they on your body? Most of them went through the right side of my body, really from my shoulder down to my right hip. There were a few that crossed my upper torso and then a few that went through my left arm as well. But from my belly button down, nothing other than one skimmed the top of my left foot, which is why when Al rescued me, I did, with support, walk out of that revolving door. That's incredible to not hit a major organ or an artery that you could have bled out very quickly. 
I know I, I say all the time there were thousands of things that went right. And one of them, I believe, is that I was protected by that revolving door. So every bullet that came through me first had to go through that revolving door. And so absolutely, I have plenty of instances where bullets went in and out, but others are very superficial when they went in and out of my body. So the damage that I will feel uh, in terms of, you know, long-term effects is minimal, I believe, again, because it had, those bullets had to travel first through a revolving door before they then entered into my body. All right. So, so you're, you're communicating with Officer Staples. I actually spoke with Officer Staples and uh, let's hear just a minute or two of his perspective on what was happening at that time. Cincinnati Police Officer Al Staples. And what was my thoughts on September 6, 2018, when I saw Whitney was, wow, she is hurt and hurt bad. Um, what can I do, obviously, to help her survive this incident? Uh, conversation, it started out, soon as we made eye contact, was you have to help me. My first one was stay down. Uh, she told me that, I am married and I have two little kids and with a fainting voice and I want to be a mommy again. But the look in her eyes and the intentionality and the will to live made me, of course, react. Uh, as soon as I heard that the situation was somewhat contained, I had another officer help me pick her up out of a bed of glass and a pool of blood and assisted to get her to a safe spot so we could try to render aid. Uh, I, but I knew she was a survivor. Uh, anything I would say was about that day was that God had to have a purpose for Whitney and a plan for her and to keep her same will with everything that she does with the Whitney Strong and stop the bleed and red flag, all to be an educational incident for people to be able to recover from something like this and survive that incident. Continue to be strong, Whitney, and thank you. Can you describe what, when Officer Staples came over to you, and what, what did he do? What happened from that point? Much of this is a blur, also because it was in such a short window of time, but I know that he picked me up and with another officer's assistance, walked me from the revolving door over to the flagpole. But the only reason I know that is because I've seen a video of it. I do not remember that other than he helped me get out of that revolving door. In fact, my memory was that he carried me. And I know that's not true based upon video footage. And so how far away did, did he bring you to be out of the uh, danger area? Again, this game I don't like. I would say it was probably 40 feet. If he was 20 feet away from me at the ATM, it was probably an additional 20 feet past that. And it's a flagpole with a bench right there on Fountain Square, um, really parallel to Fifth Street. And so they got me to that bench and they sat me down. And then he went back to work, making sure that there wasn't any additional danger. I don't think they were certain at that point if there were, you know, one or two shooters, et cetera. They just knew they had a lull, a period of time in which they could safely get me out. And what happened while you were waiting there? I, I assume, obviously, they called EMTs to, to come and, and uh, take you away. But during that time when you were there, what, how did, what happened then? So I remember they sat me down and I was in pain sitting up. I, I just remember in my head visualizing, I couldn't, certainly I was red, everywhere was red. I made the bright decision to wear a cream shirt that day. So I was drenched in my own blood, but I couldn't see my body. So I didn't know where any of the holes were, but I just kept visualizing, you know, I, I am like a piece of Swiss cheese. And I've got holes everywhere and everything hurts so bad. And I think that they sensed that and they allowed me to lay back down. And these were the first responders standing around me. One was 
uh, a female officer, Kara Graves, and she applied a tourniquet, which is another one of those thousands of things that went right. The Cincinnati Police Department carries tourniquets on them or in their vehicles, and she had hers on her person. So she pulled it out and she applied a tourniquet to my arm. And that, as I've now done a lot of work with the Stop the Bleed program, is a really important step to saving someone's life someone's life when they have a lot of uncontrolled bleeding. So they applied a tourniquet. They tried to make me as comfortable as possible, propped up my legs. And I remember thinking, you know, I need to stay. I need to stay aware and cognizant of what's going on. And so I instinctively moved into breathing exercises. I don't know why. It's not like I learned breathing exercises for pregnancy or anything like that. I just in through the nose, out through the mouth. And I must have done that for probably two hours straight. I also remember thinking, I'm making decisions. I'm telling people what to do. I'm giving Officer Al Staples my husband's phone number so that he can connect with Waller. I'm breathing deeply through these exercises and I feel my heart beating just fine. So I know this is a problem that I have all of these holes, but I also think it's a really, really good sign that I feel as strong as I do right now. And I'm thinking as clearly as I do. So just keep that up with me. Just keep, keep going through those motions. And so the last thing I remember thinking was this hurts like hell you need to get somebody here now to give me some medication so I am not in so much pain. And and that is the only moment in which it felt like things took a very long time. And they didn't. EMS was there in a good amount of time, just as well as the police, you know, arriving to the scene of the shooting. But in that moment, I was in a lot of pain. And I must have said three or four times, and I'm sure not a very polite manner, when is someone going to be here to give me some medicine for this pain? Yeah. Well, of course, your time perspective would be off. That's understandable. And did you talk to your husband during that time? I did. It was Al's idea. He said, do you have anybody you want to call? And I said, yes, let's call my husband. And another, you know, looking back, humorous moment in all of it was I gave Al my phone number. So I said I was thinking clearly. I really was, except for that one moment. So he called it. He said, Whitney, that's your number. I said, you're right. Shoot. Here's my husband's number. And so he called Waller and he was in our backyard installing a security system. He immediately heard the sirens. Al conveyed that I had been involved in an active shooting and I could just hear, you know, how terrified he was in his voice, how upset he was. And I just said, give me the phone. Let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. And so in a very matter of fact way, I said something to the effect of, I've been shot so many times. It hurts so badly, but I'm thinking, well, my heart's beating just fine and I'm breathing just fine. So you get up here right now. And then I gave him the phone back. It wasn't, I love you. You know, it wasn't anything else. It was just, this is what I need you to do. And you are a very, you're a very practical thinker, aren't you? Yes. And I guess I am also in a crisis situation. I've now learned, but I, I, I really was focused on how good I felt, even though I had gone through what I had gone through. And so unless there was something I just didn't understand at all, I was convinced that I was going to live. And every person that encountered me, I'd say, I have a five and a seven-year-old and I need to get home to them. So you need to save me. And then I'd say, and what do you think? Am I going to live? And not one person ever said, you're going to live. They just said, you're doing great. Just keep it up. Just keep doing what you're doing. And so I drew comfort from that, even though it was a bit nebulous. Yeah. That's you're saying that's what the EMTs told you, the nurses, the EMTs, the physicians, everybody I encountered, you're doing great. You just keep, I wonder if if that's a, if that's something that they're trained to how to respond as, as opposed to saying you're going to live and making a promise that they don't know. Oh, I've never heard that before. You know, I don't know. But certainly at the beginning, it would be too difficult for anybody to say, you know, one way or another, because I hadn't yet had any scans. They didn't know what, 
you know, internal bleeding had occurred, what organs that had been hit, et cetera. But, you know, as, as scans continued to come back, you know, once I got to the hospital and the pain medication started to set in, that's where things became, you know, a bit more fuzzy for me. So I know I had a lot of scans. I know that at one point I was in a room with 15 plus, you know, medical professionals that's where things started to get pretty fuzzy. So I can't tell you exactly, you know, really upon arrival from then on, things became very fuzzy. But as scans came back, they would continue to convey to, you know, the people that were there. Initially, it was my boss. Two of my bosses were there as my family because nobody was there. Cincinnati is more than an hour and a half away from Louisville. But once my family arrived, it was just more and more good news of, you know, she's been shot 12 times, but none of her organs or major arteries were hit. It's, it's a miracle. That is, it's, it's incredible. And what I find also very interesting is the fact that from the time of the shooting, right up until you were in the hospital and getting uh, uh, pain relieving medicine that you never lost consciousness. Nope. I didn't. They kept telling me not to allow that to happen. And I'm sure part of it was, adrenaline and the other part was anxiety, but I wasn't going to let it happen. I needed to feel comfortable enough with my chances of getting out of this before I was going to lose consciousness. And, and, and I didn't, you know, ultimately I didn't. So you were in the hospital for how long? It was five days. And are you fully recovered now? No, not fully recovered, but you know, people see me and they wouldn't know that this had happened to me because clothing hides so much. Now, granted, it's been cooler. And as we head into the spring and summer months, people will start to see my scars because I have two very big scars, one from my right wrist all the way up to my right elbow, and then one from my right bicep up through my armpit into my shoulder so there won't be any way of hiding that, you know, at the pool or the beach or in short, short, sh- short shirts. And then on my left hand, I have a few little scars, mainly on my left hand. So what's left and what needs to, you know, be fixed. My left hand, I ended up having to do a tendon transfer from my index finger to my thumb because my left thumb just wouldn't thumbs up. I had a ruptured tendon. And so I'm going through pretty intense physical, sorry, occupational therapy right now to try and get my index finger and my thumb to work the way that they need to. And then on my right arm, my shoulder, just the arm in general is not as strong as it used to be, but I've been doing, you know, nearly six months of physical therapy at this point. I was told initially, you may not be able to throw a football the way you used to, but I'm not throwing a football, but a couple of weekends ago, I got out on the basketball court and I made a free throw and I thought, you're wrong. I'm going to get this back. So I'm getting more and more strength in my right arm. The big problem is supination, which is basically my right forearm. You need to be able to rotate it in a way that your palm is facing up to the ceiling. And I'm just not there. So if you can envision, you know, someone puts change into my right hand, if I don't pay attention, it'll fall out because it just won't lay flat. So we're also working a lot on that through occupational therapy. But other than that, things are tight. You know, things feel tighter than they used to, but I don't walk around in pain. That's good. And you made a lot of progress. Did did I read correctly somewhere that you actually hope to never fully recover? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I won't, I won't ever fully recover. There will always be tightness. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm similar to older uh, individuals that when the rain comes or the cold is setting in, you feel it in your bones because of what I've gone through. But, you know, if, if all of this is no longer physically present, then it's so much easier for me to dismiss what happened to me and go on back to, you know, an old, my old life, which is, which was a great life, but it was a life that was fast paced, hustle and bustle, not as we discussed at the very beginning, the kind of life where you take that time to take a step back and you think about 
what you should be doing with your life as opposed to what seems natural and what seems obvious. And you said you've never been back to that building yet. Is that because of the trauma that happened there or is that just because you don't need to go back to to continue work? Well, first off, I'm still on medical leave. I should be going back shortly. So I haven't had a need to go to that building. But when I have a need to go to that building, I'm not going to be excited about it. So I will certainly do it and I will be fine, but I'm just avoiding it for as long as possible. There was a request to do a photo shoot on Fountain Square. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not ready to go back to Fountain Square just yet. I love your determination though. You know, your attitude of when it does happen, I need to go back there. I'll do it. And that's just the way it is. Right. Yep. No, I'm not going to keep allow any of this to prevent me from what I want to do in life. If anything, it just makes me more determined. And I was already a pretty determined individual before this happened. So this really just amplifies that, that part of my personality. You and your husband Waller have started a nonprofit as a result of this shooting. Can you talk about that and what, what's going on there? Yes. So when we were in the hospital the first week, I, again, I knew from the moment I was stuck in that revolving door that I wanted to do something about this. And luckily my supportive husband agreed that he wanted to do something as well. And so when we were in that hospital, we spent a lot of time thinking about how can we approach this issue in a different way? It is such a politically volatile issue. And we, we wanted to really cut through all of that. We both consider ourselves to be, you know, very much a centrist, centrist minds in terms of politics. And isn't there a way to cut through all of the volatility and figure out a way to find those solutions that everybody can get behind? And so that's what we wanted to do. And we didn't exactly know how we wanted to do that. We didn't have solutions in mind. But luckily, because I've been given this opportunity to allow my body to heal and my mind to heal in the way that it needs to through medical leave, I've had nearly seven months to dig into a lot of data, a lot of research, a lot of articles, and figure out what is the best way to approach the issue of gun violence. And so what we came, what we narrowed down in terms of our focus is first off, our mission statement. Our goal is to reduce the number of gun deaths, and we want to do that through responsible gun ownership. And so what that should tell you is two things. One, all types of gun violence are are a problem. Yes, I was involved in a mass shooting, and we don't want those to happen, but there are many, many components of gun violence, and we need to consider and take all of them seriously. So while we cannot take on hundreds of solutions each year because this is a part-time endeavor for everyone that's involved in the board. We will focus on all aspects really over the course of my life because this will be my life's mission. And then secondly, the responsible gun ownership. So, so much energy is spent on this idea that that there's potential to eradicate firearms from the United States. It's not going to happen. United States has a second amendment. It is an important amendment. And there's really no reason why we can't say it exists. But in connection with that second amendment, people need to be responsible with their firearms. So we're focused on solutions that allow people to keep their second amendment rights, but make sure that they are responsible with that firearm that they have been given. And so we have three specific solutions that we've settled on for the next couple of years that I can tell you about. The first one is suicide prevention. So if you're serious about reducing suicides, or sorry, if you're serious about reducing gun deaths, then you need to be serious about reducing suicides because 60% of gun deaths are by suicide. And so there are two proven programs that initiated out of New Hampshire, One's called the Gunshot Project, and the other is called Calm. So I'll start with the first one. The Gunshot Project, we're going to set up in the states of Kentucky and Ohio. So when an individual who is suicidal walks into a firearm shop, there will be literature 
And that literature will give them information as to what to do. Are you experiencing these symptoms? If so, here's a hotline for you so that you can get more more information and more support. And that same information will be conveyed to the employees of that gun shop. There will even be, in some instances, with the gun ranges attached to these gun shops, targets that have the National Suicide Prevention Hotline on them. So the idea is really simple. Do everything that we can to get information for preventing suicides into gun shops so that suicidal individuals don't make that decision to buy a firearm and then, you know, end their life via suicide. So that's one. I think from a from a political position, I can't imagine anyone objecting to that. No, I don't think so either. Nobody wants individuals to die at the hands of a gun. So let's give as much literature and as much information as possible so that people within these gun shops can be empowered. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the second one is called CALM, which is Counseling Access to Lethal Means. The idea of means matters originated out of the Harvard Public School of Health. But what it comes down to is firearms are the most deadly form of suicide. And so there's this idea that during that brief window of time that someone is suicidal, if you can remove their access to lethal means, then you can get them through that crisis and they will never likely never go back and try and do it again. And so CALM is set up to have that conversation in a medical setting. So whether it's in a hospital or it is in a primary care physician's office, let's make sure that there is a dedicated medical person who can have a conversation that's simple. You know, you're suicidal, Mr. Smith. What are your means to suicide? Do you have a firearm at home? Do we have someone that we can talk to to store your firearm during this period of time? So this one is more focused on using medical professionals to approach the topic of suicide. Again, trying to get someone through that period of time and and, and away from access to a firearm. So that's one solution or both of those solutions are for suicide prevention. The second solution is focused on enforcing the laws that exist. And so similarly, people can get behind this. People are, oftentimes familiar with the Brady Act, which is this idea that if you're going to purchase a firearm and you're going to purchase a firearm through a licensed firearm dealer, you're going to have to go through a background check. And there are a whole host of prohibited person categories that should prevent someone from being able to purchase a firearm. That could be a criminal conviction for violence. It could be substance abuse. It could be because of involuntarily, because of involuntary commitment. And so this one is personal to me because there is a lot of information that was released after the shooting on September 6th, speaking to the alleged mental illness of my shooter. There's even evidence that years before the shooting in Broward County, Florida, both his sister and his mother went to a judge to petition for involuntary commitment. That record has been sealed. We don't know what happened. But if he was involuntarily committed, then he should not have been able to purchase the firearm in August before the shooting occurred in September. So what we are going to do is launch a full-blown investigation into September 6th to figure out what happened. Was he truly a prohibited person? And if so, here is a very clear example to add to the many others across this country of prohibited persons gaining access to firearms and then that leading to death or injury. And we're going to get as many instances as possible of this situation and we're going to elevate it to a very prominent level, even up to the level of the federal government. There's a lot of energy right now. For example, Fix Nix is a bill that was passed in 2018 to make sure these records do get cleaned up but we need to do everything possible to help those that have the power to enforce laws appropriately that we need to make sure prohibited persons don't gain access to firearms. And then I can tell you about the last one. So yes, we need to enforce the laws that exist, but we also need to consider new laws that make sense. 
And so one of those new laws that makes sense is extreme risk protection orders. Oftentimes they are referred to as red flag laws in the states of Kentucky and Ohio, which we're really working to reduce gun deaths with. In those two states, we don't have it. 14 other states do. District of Columbia does. We do not have this law in our states. And so what does the law do? It provides a very clear path in the instance that a family member, law enforcement can petition. In some states, even qualified mental health professionals can petition. But a very clear path for one of those individuals to go to a judge and say, my family member, for example, is in the throes of a crisis. He is threatening to hurt himself or others, and he has access to a firearm. And we need that firearm temporarily removed until we can get him through this crisis. And so what I like about it is twofold. One, in so many instances of mass shootings, there were warning signs, but there was not a clear path for removing that firearm. So it gives us our solution to be able to do that. And the second thing is it doesn't discriminate. So people get access to firearms in a multitude of ways. Sometimes it is illegal access or sometimes it is illegal access. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter how that individual gained access. If they shouldn't have access at this point because of dangerous behavior, there's a way to remove that firearm. And so we've We've put a lot of work into trying to get these laws passed in Kentucky and Ohio. We've been to Washington, D.C. to speak to individuals about this law. There is a lot of momentum right now. In fact, two weeks ago, we were just in D.C. for the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on red flag law. Even Lindsey Graham, really, who is the uh, committee chair, he's the one who put together this hearing. And he endorses this law. So the idea at the federal level is that they would pass a law for any state across the United States that has red flag and they meet the thresholds that have been determined at the federal level, then those states would receive additional funding to be able to implement. It sounds like this could really uh, get some traction as opposed to other uh, efforts that have really gotten, gotten nowhere. Yes, exactly. And that's why we selected it. In order for us to choose a solution and move forward with it, it needs to first be supported by the majority. And secondly, it needs to be proven to be effective. And with extreme risk protection orders live in Connecticut and Indiana for more than 10 years, there is a lot of evidence as to how this law helps reduce suicides. So it meets both of those things majority supported, and it's proven to be effective. Well, how can people find you and find your nonprofit and and take action? So if you want to follow along with us, it is easiest through social media. You can follow us with the handle at WitStrongOrg. You can also follow along through our website, which is WhitneyStrong.org. And at this point in time, what is most needed is financial support. So we have a team, uh, a board of 14 individuals, and all of us have, of course, different skill sets, but many of us are friends back from our MBA days. So the solutions that we have selected, we feel very confident for the most part, we can tackle them. What we do need, though, is financial support in order to be able to tackle them. So you can make a donation through our website, again, WhitneyStrong.org. And I'll have links to the things we've talked about, including your uh, website on the show notes for this episode. It's quite a story. Whitney, that morning before you left home, you kissed your two children and they asked for a second kiss. You ever think about that in light of what happened? Yes, I think about it a lot. <laughs> if we go back to me trying to you know, not go back to an old life of feeling rushed and always focusing on a to-do list. In that moment, when they asked me to kiss them twice, I felt rushed. Oh no, I have to get to work. I don't have time for this. But I stopped and I made myself take that extra moment to give them a kiss. And I am so thankful 
looking back, so thankful that I took that extra time. And so when similar instances come up where they want, whether they want a second hug or they want me to sit down and play with them, which you can imagine as someone who's always on the go, sitting down and playing is not my forte. I stop. I try really hard to stop and focus in on them and be grateful because that is the biggest gift that I was given all of this is that I get to be home. I get to be with my family and that's all I wanted. So I try my hardest to be grateful for it. There's nothing more important. I agree. Well, Whitney, thanks very much for taking your time, taking the time to uh, share your story with us. I'm glad that you did make it through and look forward to seeing what your efforts can produce here in terms of reducing gun violence. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Every time I release a new show, I want to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you really like this podcast and want to make sure it keeps going, please consider supporting the show through our Patreon. You can do that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash support for as little as $1 a month. I'm just getting this going now, and eventually I'll have different levels of support with different rewards and all that comes with it. Your support not only helps me cover the cost of creating and producing and hosting a show like this, it also tells me that you like the content. So once again, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. We're on all the socials, so if you want to follow me or even contact me directly, all of that's on the website at whatwasthatlike.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like?